0: Malachi too, just to recap, up to this, we've had a couple of weeks here and there running around, not in Malachi. So <clears throat> up to this point, Malachi, uh, in Malachi is basically two messages we've looked at. Malachi chapter one, verses two to five is a message concerning God's love. It says in chapter one, verse two, "Lord says, "I have loved you," And then they question his love. They say, "How have you loved us?" Well, there's no reason ever to question the love of God. The Lord answers by saying, look, I've chosen you to be my people. What more could you want? I've showed you my love. And so they shouldn't be questioning that. That's the first message. Second message we went over a couple weeks back, whatever it was, chapter 1, verses 6 to 14. Actually, that section goes from chapter 1, verse 6, through chapter 2, verse 9. Tonight we're going to look at chapter 2, verse 1 through 9. But the section has to do with the honor and dishonor of the Lord. In this section, we're dealing mainly with the priests of Israel. And these priests were bringing dishonor to the name of God. We saw that in chapter 1. And uh, how how were they doing that? Well, they were offering sacrifices that were blemished, or that were lame, or that were blind, or sick, in some way deficient. And they're clearly showing they didn't take the the worship of God seriously. Deuteronomy 15.21 says, If an animal has a defect, any defect such as lameness or blindness or any serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. Very plain. All all priests should have understood this. They didn't care. They took it for granted. They didn't didn't care about the Lord or His worship at this time. In fact, the Lord says in chapter 1, it would be better to close the doors of the temple altogether. Just close it up. Close up shop and go home instead of conducting this kind of worship that's irreverent towards the name of God. Might as well just close it up. And so the subject of honoring God and dishonoring God so far has been dishonoring God. And we'll see it changes somewhat in chapter 2. It continues in chapter 2. We're actually going to be looking at two groups of priests tonight. Number one, the priests that dishonor the Lord. Number two, the priests that honor the Lord. First of all, let's look at the priests that dishonor the Lord, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And now this commandment is for you, O priest. If you do not listen... And if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you. I will curse your blessings, and indeed I have cursed them already, because you are not taking it to heart. Behold, I am going to rebuke your offspring, and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feast, and you will be taken away with it. Now again, these are the same priests that were mentioned in chapter 1, verses 6 to 14. And they're now going to be giving me a warning in the form of a command. He says, and now this command is for you, O priest, no doubt as to who it's directed towards. I've got a command for you, he says. Here it is. This command basically says, in effect, you better honor me. You better honor the Lord and you better quit dishonoring the Lord. It's a stern warning to quit disgracing the name of God. Start showing him reverence. In verse 2, the Lord says, If you do not listen to me, and if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you. You know, I don't think we realize how serious it is, this business of honoring the Lord, how how serious the Lord takes his honor. I don't think we, we really get that. We talk about sin, we talk about this sin, we talk about that sin, but I think maybe underlying all sin is this idea of dishonoring the Lord. Isn't all sin a dishonoring of his name? Isn't all perversions of worship dishonoring the Lord? Any disobedience to the word of God is uh, ultimately dishonoring to God. Shows disrespect to the Lord. Irreverence for the Lord. And We often quote that famous statement in the Westminster Catechism. You know, the, the, the question is asked, uh, what is the chief end of man? What's the primary goal of mankind? And we answer what? chief end of man is to... Yeah, you guys have not memorized. Chief man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And that catechism was completed in 1647 A.D. But those words are equally applicable to the priests in 6th century B.C. Because they neither glorify God nor do they honor Him. or Nor do they enjoy Him at all. What greater goal could there be for us but to glorify the Lord, right? But to honor Him in all that we do. And that's what it's really all about for us. To honor the Lord. You know, the scripture says so much about this. Again and again, it talks about honoring God in many ways. For example, Psalm 29, 1 and 2 says this Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord the glory and strength, uh, glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name, worship the Lord in holy array. Uh, The Lord, his name is worthy of of worship. And in Psalm 115, verse 1, not to us, O Lord, and as if that's not enough to say at one time, he repeats it. Not to us, O Lord, he says again, but to your name give glory. Revelation 4.11. Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. And yet the priest of Israel, have, have, who should have had the greatest interest of anybody in the nation of Israel to honor his name, were not doing that. In fact, they were deliberately disobeying, dishonoring the name of the Lord. So he says, if you do not listen, I'm going to send a curse upon you. Now, listening here is not just hearing something that someone has to say, going through one ear and out the other. The idea is that you're listening with a view to obedience. You want to not only hear, but you want to act upon what you hear, and these guys weren't doing that. (laughs) They weren't listening with a view to obedience. They were like, they're kind of like the guys in James chapter 1, they're hearers of the word, not doers. They're kind of like the people, in, in, as Paul speaks of in 2 Timothy 3.5, where it says they hold to a form of godliness, but they deny, they deny its power. looks good on the surface, but nothing's really happening inside. We could compare these priests to the people over in Titus 1.6, where it says, "...they profess to know God, but by their deeds they denied Him, being detestable." And disobedient and worthless for any good deed so the Lord says to the priest you guys better listen up what I'm telling you is very important here and then he adds this you better take it to heart Or literally they better set their heart ought to give honor to his name set your heart you're not doing that to give honor to the name of God now that phrase to set your heart means to determine a course of action based upon what you know your response should be to knowledge you have of something. They had knowledge that they should respect and honor God, and so they should, make that, they should take a course of action that sets their sail or sets their heart towards that very purpose, honoring Him. It's a purposeful response, and it involves the, their hearts. You know, a lot of times people think, well, in the Old Testament, they just had sacrifices and they had ceremonies and all this stuff, but really, you know, it was all just on the surface. But if you read the Old Testament carefully, it was never intended to be that way. It was always, God always intended for people to put their heart in their worship. Never just an outward ceremony. It was always about the heart. Old Testament, New Testament, it's always about the heart for believers. That's why the Lord said in Isaiah 29, 13, This people draws near me with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, but they remove their hearts far from me. That was a problem in Malachi's time. There was no heart for the worship of God. It didn't set their heart to honor his name it's just a routine they went through and 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 at that it was a sloppy irreverent routine they didn't even care about what they were doing as you can see in chapter 1 when your heart is not set on glorifying God by the way and it must be set on glorifying God when it's not your worship can become a mere routine and just going through the motions and you just show up for church and it's another sermon you hear preached and it's another song you sing and another prayer you pray and that's it and nothing more or, even something worse, it can, it can get to the point to where it becomes a mockery in the eyes of God. And that's what was happening here in Malachi's time with the priests, the, the, the spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel. Jesus said in John 4, God is spirit. They that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So real worship means a heart, having a heart for God. Old Testament, New Testament doesn't matter. Now what's going to happen if these guys don't change their ways, if they don't really get it together, if they don't get serious about honoring God, he says, I'm going going to send the curse upon you. Now, that's not really a new idea. Because back in Deuteronomy 28, which is an important uh, chapter in the Old Testament, he lists there the blessings that Israel will incur if they uh, obey God, and and, and the uh, disobedience, or rather the curse that's going to be upon them if they disobey God. So they knew about blessings and curses. But by and by using this word curse here in this context, they're reminded. Oh yeah, the Lord talked about that a long time ago, and and so he he did it. But but here he then unfolds what he means by the curse in this context, and there are three aspects to this curse. Number one, the first part of this curse is the Lord will immediately turn their into, blessings into curses. Immediately turn their blessings into curses. Now I say immediately because look what it says in verse two. He says there. I will curse your blessings, and indeed, I have cursed them already. The Lord's already begun. He's warning the priest, but he's to the point where he's (laughs) he's about over the edge with these guys. He's already started on the process of cursing these guys. It's already begun. Now, exactly which blessings he's cursing, even their blessings are being cursed. Isn't that interesting? It's exactly which ones are being cursed is not listed here. But um, let's think about this. One of the functions of the priesthood was to bless the people. If you would, turn back with me to Numbers chapter 6 so you can see this yourself. Numbers 6, verse 22. One of the things the priest was supposed to do was to bless the people by giving this particular blessing. In Numbers 6, verse 22 and following, it says here, this is early on, talking to Aaron, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, Thus you shall, you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, the priest was, was to say this, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and I will then bless them. And that was really a serious thing, to invoke the name of God in, in this time on the people. And he says, I'll bless them in that case. But how could the priest in this, Malachi's time invoke the name of God and expect God's blessing upon them and upon the people if they're acting like this? I just don't see how it can happen. If they're, they're despising the Lord, chapter 1 says they despise the Lord by their actions of offering these worthless offerings on the, on the altar. And so how could the Lord put his blessing upon these people, upon this priest's blessing in these circumstances? And so the priest, and effect, are withholding the blessings of God from the people because of this. That's one way we can look at this, how God is cursing their blessings. Another way is uh, the priests themselves receive spiritual blessings from being in the priesthood. It was a spiritual blessing for the priest to be a priest or a Levite. By the way, the, the Levites, the, the assistants to the priests are mentioned uh, so far as uh, just one big lump of people. They're not they're divided here, or they are earlier in the scriptures, and they will be again in, in verse... Uh, 6, verse 5, where it says, I gave the Levites to the priests to be their assistants. They're a gift to them. But he kind of lumps them all together and says, all you guys are, at least this particular group of people, were dishonoring the Lord at that time. And so, but look, when they, when they got into the priesthood, when they became Levites, they received, spirit, they received spiritual blessings from God. For example, 1 Samuel 2, 28, the Lord says to Eli the priest, whose sons were irreverential towards God's offerings. Same scenario. He says to Eli the priest, did not I choose them? Did not I choose Levi, the tribe of Levi, from all the tribes of Israel, to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? That's what they wore. And, I, and did I not give to the house of your father all the fiery offerings of the sons of Israel? In other words, he says, in effect, look, it's a great privilege for you guys to be priests, or to be assistants to the priests. This is a great privilege. You get to come near me. You get to serve me in the temple. You get to do, uh, carry out the offerings. You guys are closest to God as far as, as far as position is concerned. That's an honor. That's a great honor. And yet these same priests who received this honor from God who have been chosen to do this were dishonoring the Lord of all things. They were dishonoring him. And so they were missing out on the spiritual blessings of their, of their work. And then thirdly, they were also blessed by having uh, their needs met. Their their food was supplied for them and their housing was supplied and and they had 48 cities given to them in the land of Israel and they had pasture lands given to them and they had uh, all their material needs met and so they have all these blessings, spiritual blessings, material blessings. Uh, They were to bless the people in their their prayer and yet they're in the process now of jeopardizing this whole thing. These guys who are dishonoring God. They've been warned but they're not responding to God. They're not taking it seriously. And then... Notice also, not only will the Lord immediately turn their blessings into curses, but, secondly, the curse would also affect their descendants. It would affect their descendants. Verse 3, the Lord says, Behold, I am going to rebuke your offspring. That word rebuke is used in Deuteronomy 28 as well, listing the blessings and curses to Israel. And it it says there, The Lord will send upon you curses, confusion, and rebuke in all you undertake to do. Same word. Part of that rebuke in chapter 28, get it, when you get a chance read through chapter 28, it's a long chapter, but it talks about all the blessings and curses there. Part of the curse in chapter, th- chapter 28 of Deuteronomy had to do with their children. The Lord said, you know, if you guys are getting idol worship and you forsake me and do what you want to do and sin against me, you're going to go into captivity. Your children are going to go into captivity. And then he says in verse 32 of chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people. Think about Think about this that you're in their time. Put yourselves in their place. You're their parents, okay? Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people while your eyes look on and yearn for them continually. But there will be nothing you can do. Can you imagine what that would be like to have your children go away from you and you and you yearn in your heart for them and you want to see them and you can't do anything, they're gone. That was part of the curse. What a horrible judgment. Now, the meaning in Malachi 2 is probably something like this. probably means that the priest, and, and then this time, are going to be without descendants. Or, in some way, the descendants of the priests are going to pay for the irreverence of their, of their parents, their fathers. That's, you'd think that would be warning, warning enough. That would be warning enough for me, I think. But these guys needed a third penalty spelled out for them. So, a third part of the curse is this. The priest would be rendered ceremonially unclean they would be rendered ceremonially unclean. Look at verse 3. Harsh statement in verse 3. Uh, I'll, I'm going to rebuke your offering, and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feast, and you will be taken away with it. Now the term, term uh, translated refuse is talking about, <clears throat> first of all, when, when they killed an animal for sacrifice, the entrails were ripped out of that animal. And, and then it was made ready for sacrifice. That The entrails included the dung, or the fecal matter, of the animal, by the way. And the law of Moses tells us what to do with that. It says in Exodus 29, or told the people what to do with that. Exodus 29:14, for example, says this, But the flesh of the bull, all the bad stuff you want to get rid of, and its hide and its refuse, refuse you shall take with fire and burn with fire outside the camp. Burn it outside the camp. It was, un, it was considered unclean to burn this refuse and, and entrails and all this nasty stuff inside the camp of Israel. That was considered unclean. So he said, take it outside the camp, this nasty stuff, and burn it out there. That's what they were to do. Now, you know, sometimes when you're reading the Old Testament, it's very, it can be very up front and in your face. It can be very, you know, uh, it gets down to the nitty-gritty sometimes. When you're reading it, it tells it like it is. Sometimes that's hidden in our English translations, unfortunately. There's some verses that you don't really readily see. He's really getting to something uh, nitty-gritty, and you don't see it on the surface, because sometimes the translators, they don't want to be too you know, blatant about how they translate. Here, though, he says, Look, I'm basically going to spread refuse on your faces. That's what he says. That's pretty blatant. And what, what he's saying is that the dung of the sacrificial animals They answered that they offered... I'm talking about the blemished animals, like the lame animals and the sick and the the blind and all that. Those sacrifices, he says, I'm going to spread the dung of those sacrifices on your faces. That's what he says. That's what the Lord says. And he says, you will be taken away with it. In other words, the priest, the meaning being the priests are going to be thrown out with the dung into the refuse pile. That's what he's saying. I'm getting rid of all you guys. You're done. Because you've dishonored me. Those that dishonored him, at least... Those that honor him would not be thrown away in such a manner. In other words, he's saying, look, basically you priests are going to become unclean and unfit to do the work of, of this, of, of that I've called you to do anymore. You're going to be unfit to do it, unclean to do it. You're not going to be able to do it. You're no longer going to, be, going to be in the temple offering sacrifices. You're going to be like refuse discarded in the dung pile. That's what you're going to be like. It's a way of saying you priests are going to be removed from your office in utter disgrace. And because you're dishonoring God. Now that is, think about that for a minute. That is a degrading, you know, humiliating way, an inglorious end to their career. Just the vivid imagery used here shows how disgusted the Lord was with the priests of this time. Now don't ask me how the Lord's going to carry this out. Somebody's going to come later on and say, well, how does that work? I don't know. You have the information I have in front of you. I don't know how he was going to do this. I do know this. The priests were facing total disgrace. Uh, and, and, and they disregard, they disgraced the worship of God, so they themselves would be disgraced. They treated the Lord with contempt, so they would be tr- treated with contempt. That's how it works. They defiled God's altar, he was going to defile them. And that's what he says. And that is the end of all those who dishonor God. And then secondly, the main, another main point, the priests who honor the Lord. Let's talk about the priests who honor the Lord. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. Then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him, I gave the Levites as as assistance to the priest, as a gift, uh, uh, as an object of reverence. So he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and He turned many back from iniquity, for the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Now, does this judgment against these priests who are dishonoring God mean that this, that this, uh, that God's through the Levitical priesthood? He's done with them. Is that what it means? No, it does not say that. It says in verse four, His covenant with Levi will continue. It's going to continue. Just because these guys are dishonoring God doesn't mean he stopped his covenant with with the tribe of Levi. However, let that be a warning to all of us. That just because God is is blessing a group of people doesn't mean that each individual can get away with dishonoring God. Take a church, for example. The Lord can be blessing a church, but God will deal with each individual in that church if they're dishonoring him. He's going to deal with those people. So every single person, every single one of us will answer to God. We can't just hide in the church and think that we're under God's blessing. We have to honor God. Now, the priests who are spoken of as honoring the Lord are from a former time in Israel's history. They are the, from the tribe of Levi. Same tribe as the guys in Malachi. Same tribe, but different priests. They're from a different time. And notice that the Lord, first of all, speaks with this covenant he has with Levi. Now, that's interesting. Levi was the son of Jacob. You remember back in Genesis. Son of Jacob. But the, what's being referred to here is not the person, Levi, but the tribe of Levi. Now, you can search through the Old Testament, and you will, find, you will not find a formal covenant, a formal covenant established with Levi laid out in explicit detail. Now, what does the word covenant mean? It simply means an agreement between two parties, sometimes based on conditions, sometimes it's unconditional. Now, this, co- this covenant with Levi is not a prominent covenant or detailed like the Abrahamic Covenant. It's not detailed like the Davidic Covenant or one of the big covenants like that. But since it's mentioned more than once in the Scripture, maybe it's better to call it, as Walter Kaiser does, an informal covenant. Covenant, yes. Not, as, not on the same level, maybe, as the Abrahamic Covenant. For example, Jeremiah 33 talks about this. Jeremiah thirty-three nineteen 19 through 20, 21. Listen to this, Jeremiah 33, 19. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying... Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, so we see there's a covenant for the day and for the night as well. God says it's always going to be it's going to be day and it's going to be night. That's how it's going to be. If you can break my covenant for the night and for the day, so that day and night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levitical priests, my minister's. In other words, there is a, he says, if you can break my covenant with the day and night so that you, the day and night ceases to be, then my covenant with David will be broken, which we know is not going to happen. And there's an implied, an implied covenant with Levi here, the one implied with the Levitical priests, my ministers. So it's implied there in Jeremiah 33. And then in Nehemiah's day, Nehemiah 13, 29, some of the priests were marrying pagan women. And Nehemiah prays in Nehemiah 13 29. Listen to this prayer. Remember me, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood, these guys. These priests have defiled the priesthood. And they have defiled the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. There it is again. Mentioned again. So Nehemiah was aware of a covenant with Levi. Now, when you trace back the Levites in Israel's history, when Israel made the golden calf in chapter 32, remember. The people sinned against God. They made the golden calf. And and Moses said, Who's on the Lord's side? Let him come to me. And who came to him? Who came to his side? The Levites did. They said, We're with you, uh, Moses. We're we're ready to stand with the Lord. And then in Numbers 25, after the whole incident with Balaam and Balak and all that mess, it was Phinehas who stood up and had zeal for the Lord and who intervened on behalf of Israel. He's the grandson of Aaron. Again, from the Levitical background, he's zealous for the Lord. In Numbers 25, the Lord said there to Phinehas, Behold, I give him my covenant of peace, and it shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of a perpetual priesthood. And then in Deuteronomy 10, verses 8 and 9, At that time the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord to serve him and to bless his name until this day. Therefore Levi does not have a portion or inheritance with his brothers, The Lord is his inheritance, just as the Lord your God spoke to him. So, yes, there is a covenant with Levi. It says it in the scriptures. He's been set apart to serve the Lord. And the Lord will maintain this covenant, regardless of priests who dishonor God or not. He's going to maintain that covenant, it says. Now, according to verse 5, this is a covenant marked by life and peace. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. That was the Lord's promise to them. He promised them life and peace. You know, if they if they kept his covenant, you know, if you do the if whenever you do the Lord's work in the Lord's way, you're going to have His favor upon you. By the way, His blessing upon you, life and peace, you're going to have that, and you're going to have life and have it abundantly, and you're going to know true spiritual life, and you're going to know His peace, like Isaiah twenty six three says, "You Lord will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on You, because He trusts in You." In Romans eight, you think of. You think of the, the phrase life and peace for those who are believers, for spiritual believers, believers in general, but believers are, or should be spiritual. And so living a true spiritual life leads to life and peace. And that's what God intended for the Levitical priests. He said, I want you guys to have life and peace. I want this to be a blessing. He intended for all this to be a blessing to the priests and the people if they did things his way, and that's the key. But they didn't do things his way. But nevertheless, there's this covenant with Levi. And then notice the conduct of the Levites, the former Levites here. He goes and talks about how they used to do things back in the day. The conduct of the former priests is is a stark contrast to the conduct of the later priests. So how did the former priests conduct themselves? First of all, the priests who honored God showed him reverence. They showed him reverence. Look at verse 5. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence. So he revered me. He revered me and stood in awe of my name, or literally, he feared me, is what the word is. He feared me and stood in awe of my name. What a great contrast <laughs> between the guys who are dishonouring God in Malachi's time. You know, in, in Malachi 1:6, the Lord says, "If I'm a father, where's my honor? You guys aren't honoring me, and if I'm a master, where's my respect? And then he says, you, you guys in verse eight chapter one, you guys would treat the governor of your country better than you would me." That's how they did it. There was no fear of God before their their eyes at all. But unlike those later priests, the former priests in in, in this time stood in awe of God's name. They stood in awe of his name. They feared him. That's the way it should be. They should fear God. You know, the first thing always, we started talking about this a couple weeks ago, the first thing we must have in our church and your life is what? A high view of God. If we don't have a high view of God, we have nothing. Without that, the building, the whole building crumbles. We have nothing at all. So let me ask you tonight, how do you view the Lord? How do you see Him? Do you do you fear the Lord tonight? Do you stand in awe of His name? Or do you show by your attitude and your action that He's just not a priority in your life? You just don't care. So the priest who honored God's name, or honored God, showed him reverence. And then, secondly, the priest who honored God taught the scriptures. They taught the scriptures. Look at verse six. It says, "True instruction was in his mouth." He really taught the truth. Uh, that's what he did. He taught the truth of the scriptures. You know, there was a time. There was a time in Israel's history prior to Malachi when the Lord's priests taught the truth. Apparently, not happening during Malachi's time, but they taught it in former times. Now, we just had a conference, by the way, a conference, a whole entire conference on biblical inerrancy. We went to. Why do, why do that? Every, every speaker there was assigned a subject. They all got up and they said, well, I was assigned this subject. So I knew that from, from what they were saying. And they were assigned different subjects on the, on the, on the uh, general topic of inerrancy. And they, and they preached those subjects and taught those. Now, why do that? Why have a conference on inerrancy? Everything had to do with inerrancy for an entire week. Why do that? Well, because churches and pastors have this tendency to drift away from the truth. That's why. It's always through. It's all. It's always in history like this. They drift away from the truth. All the seminaries, by the way, all the Ivy League uh, uh, schools, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, were started out as seminaries. They all went by the wayside. They're all. You go there now. What are you going to hear? Liberal theology. In fact, you go to any state university in the country, and basically 98% of the time, you're going to hear, hear liberal theology taught in the religion department. That's what you're going to get. And so people drift away from the truth. Pastors drift away. Churches after a time. Seminaries after a time. I think, I'm think i thinking of Fuller Theological Seminary. Again and again, you can name the seminaries. Drifting away from the truth after years. <clears throat> it's what happens. It happened in Spurgeon's Day when they had the downgrade controversy and churches begin to drift away from the truth, begin to embrace error. It happens again and again. You all know Matthew Henry. Maybe, maybe. How many of you have a commentary by Matthew Henry? Or you have access to it, or you've seen it at least somewhere? Or seen them somewhere? Do you know the chapel that he once preached in? He once pastored in a, a certain chapel? That eventually became a place where a, uh, a, a doctrine called Socinianism, Sosinian, full-blown Sosinianism was began to be taught after Matthew Henry Long, after Matthew Henry left. What's that? That's a heresy. It denies the Trinity. denies the incarnation of Christ. It denies his deity. And a whole host of errors come along with that. Uh, and, and a bunch of baggage comes along with it. Matthew Henry once preached the truth of God's word in that chapel. In time, it became that, a place where error was preached. You know, it happens. It happens all the time. Don't think we're not susceptible because we're called Grace Bible Church. Well, we could be called that in name only one day. You know, I hope that, I hope that we've got to be vigilant here to proclaim the truth, by the way, so we don't fall into error. I hope that one day I don't, I don't hear, we don't hear that, Wow, that truth, that Grace Bible Church uh, down the street there, they, uh, they don't preach the truth anymore. We never want to get to that point where we drift away. You know, actually instructing the people was a primary duty of the Levitical priest. They should have been doing this. They were commissioned with this responsibility. Leviticus 10.11, uh, Aaron the priest, it says, was to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord had spoken to them through Moses. That was his job. Deuteronomy 33.11, of Levi it said, They shall teach your ordinances to Jacob and your law to Israel. What do you think Ezra was doing after captivity? He was teaching the scriptures, right? How could people know what the scripture said back in that day if they weren't instructed? Uh, people weren't carrying around a, you know, a Torah study Bible that they had access to. How could they know what to believe? How could they know what to, to understand about God unless someone taught them? Verse 7 says, the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, shouldn't they? That's a they should preserve knowledge. And men should seek instruction from his mouth. I mean, this is something that should happen. After all, he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts, it goes on to say, right? He is the messenger. He should be teaching the message. And that message is God's message. You know, It doesn't matter what the generation in history is either, whether it's back then in uh, the time of Moses, whether it's in the time of Malachi, whether it's in the time of now, every generation of God's people must teach the Word of God. We must teach the truth of the Word of God. It's our duty always to do this. Ephesians 4.11 now, and and he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. The same exact need that was was felt in the Old Testament exists today. Same need, people still need to be be taught the Scriptures. There's no difference, regardless of generations. Scriptures must be taught, not substituted for something else either. must be taught and put in the forefront so people can hear what the Word of God says. So the, the priest who honored God taught the Scriptures. And then thirdly, the priest who honored God lived righteously. They live righteously. Notice how many times it says this in in verse 6. It says it negatively. It says it positively. It says in verse 6, unrighteousness was not found on his lips. That's negative. It wasn't found on his lips. In other words, there wasn't any untrue representations of God coming forth from the mouths of the priests back in those days. Everything they spoke was the truth. It says he walked with God, meaning he had a close communion with God. You don't see that in Malachi's time. Those priests are doing whatever they want to. He walked in uprightness, it says. He turned many back from iniquity. His job was to go after people, going into sin, and say, Hey, stop. Come back to God. Get right with God. He didn't encourage them to pursue iniquity. He turned them back from it. I don't know how many of you were caught wind of this this week, but my wife had to, uh, happened to get a couple of newspapers for a certain reason this week, and I, was, I picked up one, and I noticed an article on the page about the Presbyterian Church USA. Not the Presbyterian Church of America, PCA. Those guys will let you know in a heartbeat they're the conservative branch, all right? Not talking about PCA people. PCA people, don't get mad at me. Okay? I'm talking about Presbyterian Church USA. The ministers and elders, it said in the article, had a vote on whether to allow gay marriage or not in their churches. Now, this has been coming for some time, by the way. And they voted yes in favor of gay marriage in their churches. Now, one minister who disagreed with, with this vote. He said this. His name is Jeff Winter, by the way. Give him a little bit of credit here for saying this statement. He said, I'm very, very disappointed with the outcome of the vote and much more disappointed with the drift of the denomination from what the scriptures have said for 2,000 years. This guy gets it. That marriage is between a man and a woman. That's what he said. But on the other side of the coin, the Reverend Jean Cooley, J-E-A-N, female retired minister of the Presbyterian Church USA, she said this about the vote. She said, for me, I was just delighted that this is finally happening in the Presbyterian church. It's been a long time coming, and for me, it reflects the biblical witness, no less, that God calls us to love one another. That was her opinion of this whole thing. Now we're finally reflecting the biblical witness, she says. She, by the way, she would belong to the group of the later priests, I think. It's not exactly turning people away from iniquity, is it? In fact, she's pushing people towards iniquity. Her and her husband both had the same view, by the way. He's a retired minister as well. You know, the Bible says, woe to those that call evil good and good evil, doesn't it? I tell you what, the Presbyterian Church USA will now officially have the curse of God upon them. That's for sure. Right, they could abide on that church. In verse, look at verse 8 and 9. He says, but as for you, as for you, you priests in Malachi's time, you have turned aside from the way... <coughs> You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I have also made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. So in verses 8 and 9, the Lord returns to the first group of people, the the priests in Malachi's time, the guys who are dishonoring God. He says very clearly, as for you, I'm talking about you, says it more than once, you've turned aside from the way. The first problem was the priests, in Malachi's time, when they went off the track altogether, themselves. They first went off God's track. They went off God's track. They went away from God's word. They deliberately did it. They deserted the way of God on purpose, is the idea here. Now, how do you think that's going to affect their ministry to the people? Well, it says here, you have caused many to stumble by the instruction. Whereas the former priests were giving true instruction, these guys, I don't know what they were saying. They were despising God's name, and they were turning... Look at the contrast between the God-honoring priests and those who are dishonoring God. It says, the, four, the one says, they turn many back from iniquity. And the, the later priest it says, these cause many to stumble by the instruction. You can see that what would happen, you can see how their ministry to the people. I mean, the people are hurt by all this in the long run. The people are hurt. And The Lord continues his accusation. His accusation. He says, you have corrupted the covenant of Levi. That doesn't mean that the covenant of Levi ceases to exist. It just means that these God-honoring priests have forfeited their right right to the priesthood. They're no longer going to be priests. Look at verse 9. He says he's made them despised and abased before all the people. They mistreated God's word publicly. So he's going to show them publicly. He's going to show them contempt publicly. Even guilty of showing partiality, it goes on to say, maybe they even took bribes in their judgments they render for the people. So we've got these two groups in Malachi chapter 2, all of them priests. But the latter group dishonored the Lord. The former group honored the Lord. But even the former group was not perfect in what they did and all their duties as you read through the scripture. They weren't perfect. And, never, and also, they had to offer sacrifices for their own sins first. All priests did. They had to do that. And wouldn't it be great to have a priest who was uh, who honor the Lord constantly without fail, wouldn't that be a great thing? We had, I, I commend the guys for honoring the Lord in the former times. Well, how about one who did it, who never dishonored Him, not even in the slightest thought, not even in the slightest word or deed? How about that kind of a priest? Well, we've got a priest like that. Hebrews 4.14 calls Him a great high priest. His name is Jesus. He's the one who is always honoring God all the time, 24 hours a day. He never fails to honor God. He always honored His Father, even to the point of death. And He taught the Scriptures faithfully always, and told the people the truth, even if it hurt, even if it was against Him. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He taught the the Word to people constantly. You always see in the Gospels great crowds gathering around Him so He could teach them. And He lived righteously. Hebrews 4.15 says, He was tempted at all things as, as we are, yet without sin. He didn't sin, never sinned. 1 Peter 2.22, you talk about having no unrighteousness on your lips. It says in 1 Peter 2.22, Jesus committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He did everything perfectly well as the priest. He's our priest. This priest will never lead anybody astray. He'll never lead us astray. He will fulfill the role of a true priest. We can trust this priest. We can go to him with all our needs. We can love him. We can serve him. Let me close by reading Hebrews chapter 7. Turn to Hebrews chapter 7 with me. This is our great high priest. Hebrews 7.23 says in Hebrews 7.23, the former priest, talking about the priest in the Old Testament, the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. They would have continued, but they kept dying, he says. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Let's pray. Lord, well, we are grateful again to have your word in front of us. We just pray that we would be people who would honor you, Lord, taking uh, heed and taking warning from what we've seen here. Pray we'd honor you in our words. Pray we'd honor you in our deeds and in our thoughts. We pray we'd honor you in our worship. and all that we do, we pray this week we would dedicate to honor the honor and glory of God. We just pray this in Christ's name. Amen.